Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listening, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, a podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode features a conversation with actor Oliver Senton. It would be fantastic if you could rate, review and subscribe to the podcast, as doing that helps more people to discover it. It's also wonderful when people share the podcast far and wide. You can find out more information about me and the projects I'm working on at robertlaymusic.co.uk, where you can also sign up to my mailing list to receive news and my thoughts about creativity and the stuff I'm up to. Thank you. Here's my conversation with actor Oliver Senton. Hi Oliver, how are you? Hi, I'm I'm good. How are you today? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. There's sunshine and everything here where I am, so that's good. Yeah, here too. Very bright sunshine. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. What am I interrupting you from to be talking to you today? Oh, what you're not do? this morning. We've got some friends coming down a bit later, coming over from uh, like Guildford area. My mm-hmm. my closer friend of my wife's and, and her two goddaughters. So we'll probably go down to the beach with them. Lovely. Later. You're in an area where you can just do that. Just go down to the beach whenever you fancy, right? We are. We actually have a choice of three. Well, that's a bit ostentatious, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> There's like the sandy one, which isn't very big, so that gets quite busy. There's a long shingle one that goes on for miles, so being pebbly, it's never so busy. And then just over the headland towards Dover, there's a wonderful wilder beach called the Warren, which is very good for fossiling. Fantastic. And how long have you been in that area? You were in London before this, I think, is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, for a long time. We've been here just over seven years now. Easter 2016, we came down here. And how has that made a difference sort of work-wise, as much as you might think or not? Yeah. um, Well, in many ways, I suppose, in the sense that um, travelling up to London is is relatively easy. It's still only under an hour, and I've done shows in the West End and come back. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so one can commute. But... um, you want to, you know, you don't want to be going away from home. So the struggle to find work closer to home is is ongoing. Still trying to find, there have there has been bits and pieces down here, but still trying to find more that would enable me to to actually work as an actor as opposed mm. to as a teacher or whatever else mm. down here. So that that's the balance is still finding itself. Yeah, of course. And have those opportunities? changed over the years do you think do you think it is more possible for people to be actors and not live in london um are things diversifying a bit or not it's really difficult, isn't it? i mean of course it is with the whole the whole two things have changed made it easier one is um self-tapes mm-hmm. of course so you don't have to always go into london no matter whether you might think about self-tapes it at least means you can do everything from home so that's a plus and also if you do a lot of voice work i, I know a lot of people who have now little studios or converted cupboards in their house and and that's a strand of their income as well so those Mm. things have increased it but i think for live work not really unless you're lucky enough to live in a city or a region where there's a theater or company that will regularly employ you yes it's not it's not unknown but it's rare that's right yeah and a lot of the casting breakdowns that I see will say things like, we want uh, regional accents, people from all over, and then at the bottom they say, must be based in London. So they want the voices (laughs) and the rest of it, but of course then it's a financial thing of bringing people in and putting them up sometimes, I guess, makes life difficult for them. Well, yeah. Are you you based in London then? No, I'm in Wolverhampton up in the West. Oh, you just said you're in Midlands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it is is true. And and also there's this thing now with TV, which every actor knows about, tries to get around that... um, they want you to be London-based. Some of the like the massive, the biggest, richest shows. Mm. I, I, I was offered a part in Call the Midwife, uh, or pre-COVID, so like four or five years ago. And luckily for me, I was offered it directly by the director. Very rare, only time it's ever happened in my life. Um, and so I was given the part. And then Call the Midwife turned around her and said, "Yeah, but he's not. He's, he's in Kent, so he doesn't follow our criteria." And they were like, "Too late." <laughs> so they had to let me do the job anyway and pay for oh, cars. Wow. To- that's very interesting to hear that. That's yeah, something something as mainstream as that has still got those same things. And is that a financial thing then? Do you think from that point of view? Yeah, it must be. I and mean, it's the BBC. I know they're always cutting corners. But Call the Midwife is uh, now Top Gear has gone. Is their single biggest global export? Really? And yet they can't afford to put up actors in London when they're filming. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah, great. We'll get onto a lot of that stuff, hopefully. I think I find it all very interesting. I'm sure people listening in would as well. But I think it would be fair to sort of, if we can, do a bit of a start of how you got started in this industry and the things that have led you to where you are now. And people will always say, well, I'll try and do a short version because most actors have quite a portfolio career where a lot of different things have happened. But let's say, where did it start? Where did the idea of doing this or these various things sort of start for you in, in your life? Do you mean doing this as a profession? Yeah. I started doing plays at school. I did Amdram. I was lucky enough to do some plays with the National Youth Theatre. And I would say quite soon after starting to do plays, I sort of knew that was what I wanted to do. My my dad had wanted to be an actor, right. but then kind of at university time got cold feet and decided it was all too scary, mm-hmm. understandably, and went into business and got his kicks by being a very uh, senior uh, global lecturer on business matters. And that's how he fed his his bug so he he had wanted to do it so i suppose there was that in my mm-hmm. dna or conditioning as well um so i yeah so i did all those amateur and nyt things and then i wanted to go to drama school but of course i was i was told you know you must ask people in the profession of course people in the profession as would have been there won't then said well you know go to university first and get a degree so you've got something to fall back on and all that so i listened to that mm-hmm went to university, was absolutely miserable, left university and went to drama school. What uh, um, What did you study, sorry, at the university? So it was at York University. I mean, I say I was miserable. Uh, there were good things about it. I wasn't, yes, you know, but I was a bit depressed. Um, York University was called English and Related Literatures because you had to have one module that was non-English. Okay. And I think I'd chosen Anglo-Saxon, which was... It was was Anglo-Saxon medieval York is very big and still is. And I think if I'd stayed to do my whole degree, I also was going to do modern French literature because I lived in Belgium as a child. So I speak French and have kind of always spoken French. So, um, yeah, so that was the degree. And there was some great stuff about it. You know, a wonderful tutor called Michael Cordner, who was an advisor to the RSC on restoration drama, and 18th century literature with him. And that was great and Sid Bradley who was one of the leading Anglo-Saxon tutors in the country and he was great but I just wasn't doing what I wanted to do and then I I started taking um, lessons with an acting and singing teacher there I can't remember her name now she was lovely though and started applying to drama schools in my first year at university without asking myself hang on why are you applying to drama Mm. schools when you're here at university I hadn't said to myself I'm going to leave I just thought hey you know I'll just apply to some drama schools um, but then I, at the beginning of my second year, I had been offered various things. Uh, I think, in fact, I think I was only offered at Bristol and, and the poor school, I think, uh, which then existed. Uh, and so I went to Bristol and I was there 90 to 92. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, oh, you know, that, yeah, as you say, many years to compress it. I did a lot of work on the London fringe. My, my career, very broadly speaking, has bounced between, the very mainstream and the very alternative. But I'd say those first five or six years, I survived thanks to the social security system. You couldn't do it now, signing on, signing off. There wasn't the same stigma about it then. Mm-hmm. This is early 90s, 30 years ago. Um, <clears throat> so I did that, and I did a lot of small-scale touring around the country, back of the van kind of stuff, and yeah. a few bits of telly when it came along. And then I'd say the first big uh, turn development in my career came in the in 97 98 when i started working with a great theater maker called ken campbell and ken um uh i i basically started did a play for him called the warp which was a 24 hour long play uh in 10 it was written as 10 plays in the 70s when it was originally produced and then it was but it's it's sequential it's about a man's life from the age of uh, from, from basically from 1956 to 1978. <clears throat> and after a while, all the actors said, we should just do it like this, back to back. So that is how it was, it was done. So we, I did that with Ken, and that relationship really has affected lots of things ever since in terms of the fact that I've gone on to work with his daughter and out of work with Ken came before he died, the School of Night and Showstopper, the Improvised Musical, both of which I'm a founder member of. So that's all gone on. But at the same time as that more alternative stuff, and also also on the alternative level, I'm an associate of a company called Slung Low based in Leeds who specialise in, well, 
up until a few years ago, certainly would say specialised in large-scale new writing outdoors, but okay. that's diversified over COVID. But also at the same time, I've done my RSC and I've done my Mamma Mia in the West End and, you know, old warhorse plays in um, in regional theatres. So, and bits of telly like, you know, EastEnders and Doctors and Casualty and all that sort of stuff. So it's bounced between those two extremes. Whether that's a good thing, I don't know. There's a really important question, I think, to be asked in terms of if you can do a lot of things well, does it confuse people? They don't know what you are, but a very very famous actor once said to me, you've got to keep them guessing as long as you can, because once they stop guessing, you're just another piece of meat on the conveyor belt. Interesting. That's something I think about a lot, and I, I talk to people a lot as well. I'm a musician and an actor trying to be a writer and all these things and uh, yeah. I've, I've said that people who've listened to will have heard me say this before but i this thing of drill you know drilling for oil and you're doing this one thing and just as you're about to hit the oil or the gold or whatever metaphor yeah. you yeah. want you then stop that and then you move over here and do a bit of this and then blah, blah. should it be that you're sticking with the one thing but then a lot of people i've spoken to who are jobbing freelancers with portfolio careers say well you have to do all these different things because each of them is so difficult and getting paid for these things is so difficult in itself that you you need to be doing different stuff. And I think there's also a theory, I, I don't know if you'd agree with it, that I guess it's what you've just said about being the meat puppet. The different combinations of things that an individual does is what makes that person. So even if they're not doing a project that is... So I'm a musician, so I'm not doing a project where I'm, I'm playing guitar or whatever. The fact that yeah. that is part of my identity and my soul might be useful because it makes me a little bit different to somebody else who could be doing it, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. And again and again, you know, you hear the advice, and I would certainly corroborate this myself, that you've got to have a, you've got to live your life. You've got to go off and have experiences in order to feed the other parts of your life, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. But I'm, I'm aware of a pattern in, in my career also. That sometimes things just run out and you're like, they run their course, right? Like, okay, I've got to go on to the next thing or yeah. whatever. But there are three or four occasions which I've gone, I've done, I've, I've, I've done that, done that now. And I could have gone on doing it and earning money from it. You kind of go, no, enough. Mm. And is that always clear to you and obvious when you're at that point or have there been moments when it's quite difficult Um do you know what I mean? It's taken a while to realise I'm done with this now or, or it's done with me and I should move on. Is it is it an obvious thing or does it take some reflection? Mostly it's quite easy, I think, when it happens. And, of course, you tend not to make the decision when you're broke. You know, you make the decision when you're all right and then six months later you go, oops, <laughs> I could do with that now. You know what I mean? But, but I've never really regretted any of those those decisions. Yeah, and have things tended to, I mean, I find this a lot of people, when you look back, it all looks like a beautiful uh, set plan. Of course it was going to go that way. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> feel like that at the time, though, I'm sure. So did it, were there moments when you're like, what the fuck's happening next, or why am I doing this? You know, oh, God, yeah, stuff. so many times. So many times, absolutely. I've, I've always taken comfort in the fact that, you know, the word career means, you know, to veer wildly from point to point. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, and and that's that sort of gives me gives me comfort. But also after a while, so many things that we do, and uh, this will be true for all freelancers, I'm sure, whether you're a potter or a landscape gardener or whatever, is things you, it becomes an act of faith. So you're like something has always come up. So something will come up. Now that doesn't mean you haven't got to work for it and look and think about the leads and da 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 da. But when that when something has happened a hundred times you're like okay it'll it'll happen you have to sort of keep the faith a little bit yeah and how difficult is that <laughs> uh, how long when there's periods where stuff isn't happening have you found it easy to keep the faith the way you've just said it i guess it's an experience thing perhaps when you you're starting out you're not aware but as you've gone on the fact that it's stuff has worked out in the past is reassuring maybe it's, it is reassuring, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in a lull right now, really. I, I was busy until sort of June, and I've had some writing, some translation work, and there are little bits in the autumn and loads of things that might happen, mm. you know, but mm. I don't know. So you have to just keep on watering the things that might happen and find other little bits and pieces in between until something comes along to re recalibrate, you know. So I had like a big theatre job over Christmas, settled for a while and then i had a good block of filming in april may 
but between then it's just been little bits and pieces mm. you know so it yeah it, it's it does that does that get, it, it is a comfort to think about it it is a comfort um but of course there are other days when you're like i, I would just like to have a regular job of some kind even if that's uh teaching in a drama school i mean yeah. my god those are some of the most highly fought over <laughs> jobs in our industry i think yeah those kinds of, that kind of work but teaching is something that you have you've done uh, quite a lot of as well i think so whether it's um is that on a basis where you're employed by an institution or is it sort of workshopping and going out and doing stuff or a, a mix of both um, a mix of both uh, early on when i started teaching i didn't, didn't really start teaching till sort of my mid-30s I'm always amazed at people who start teaching in their twenties because I don't think I would have known en- enough yeah. to do that. Um, when I started in my mid thirties, and then I worked a lot with younger kids, um, but always quite freelancing. I worked for people like uh, the Primary Shakespeare Company, um, and I did workshops for the Orange Tree and Shakespeare, the, the National Theatre's Education Department. Uh, loads, loads of people. None of the big sort of franchises. I didn't do Stagecoach or Bigfoot or anything like that. That wasn't really for, for me because I've always preferred doing teaching where if someone hands me a template and says, this is the template for the workshop. And I think this is, that's not, if I don't get a say in how this is designed, then I find that difficult. Mm-hmm. But then latterly, um, it became, it's become almost, almost exclusively teaching in drama schools, really. I, I, I taught regularly, I taught impro in drama studio for 15 years until a couple of years ago. And I've also done modules, mostly in Shakespeare and classical stuff, in Rada and Weber and a few other a few other schools. So those are only like a few months at a time. Um, so yeah, I haven't been teaching so much in the last couple of years. I've got, got some workshops coming up in the autumn. Um, so I'd like to do, I'd like to do some more. I do really love it actually, but I haven't done any very recent. And have you found that teaching and workshopping has actually uh, informed or helped your own performance as well? And, and how? What's the kind of relationship there? Well, it's always it's definitely always good to be doing both. You know, I've never I've never been in a situation where I've been teaching and not practicing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it's more the other way around. I think it's like when you you, you have your practice as an actor, whatever that might be. And then you come into the into the room with your students, and you go, "Does this does this check out? Does this work?" So it's almost like you're testing your practice in the room. And they, of course, you know, as any good teacher knows, they're always showing you new ways of looking at it and things you've done with a technique that you've never thought of, or because they're all their own people, right? So that's amazing. So I suppose it does feed you with ideas, but it's more the other way around. You see what I mean? Of bringing what you think works into the room and going, "Well, okay, let's see if I'm." if this checks out with other people, right? Mm. And if I can communicate it. That's part of it, isn't it, actually? I find with teaching sometimes that I understand this that I'm delivering to you, but you haven't, you're not understanding it the way I'm doing it. So I've now got to yeah. find a different way of getting it across. And in doing that, I'm suddenly going to go, oh, I'd never really thought about it like that before. Yeah. So even in a subject that you know, there's always a different uh, way of perceiving it, I think. Well, and also, I think one of the things I learned from Ken, I don't think I've vocalised this before, because Ken was a great teacher as well. He was a great teacher. He was a great theatre maker. He was a great iconoclast. But he was a brilliant teacher. Mm. Uh, not to say he couldn't be very harsh sometimes. And one, I you know that's not my route. I think I'm certainly kinder than he was as a teacher. But he, <laughs> he there's a thing he used to say, which was, don't show me what you can do. Show me what you can't do. And mm. that to teach, you'd put people into a situation of, attempting something that might seem impossible you know they go what what is this why why you know and that for me is very helpful as a teaching thought to go i'm going to put you into into place to show you that you are capable of doing something that you don't even understand and you might think is impossible just to expand people's idea Mm. of their own potential Mm. and they're in actually i guess make up new stuff which is a strand of what we're all trying to do at some points i guess yeah and also, I did a project at Rada, uh, what, well, five years ago, probably now, four or five years ago. It was a second-year project on King Lear. And what was really interesting about it is that there was there was a very low-key showing, but it wasn't a show. It wasn't a performance. And it really made me realize that at that level, what you're trying to help someone to do is to find out what kind of actor they are. Mm. And they're all different. Of course, of course they are. 
but they're all mostly still figuring it out. So a few will have a very clear idea, but mostly they're figuring it out. So you're like, uh, and you, they might not be the actor that they think they are, you know? So always kind of going, yeah, but try it, you know, try it this way. Try it in, in, a, in, a, in a way that seems ridiculous. Do that scene without any consonants you know? mm. or, uh, you know, ran, random notes, again, which is a thing from Ken of, of sort of saying, okay, I want you to come on stage and you're acting this whole scene, but somewhere in the room there's a really odd, faintly unpleasant smell that you can't locate. <laughs> and that's always in your mind as well as it's all it's almost a what's the what's the the, the magic technique where you make someone look to another place? Read is it called mis- misdirection? Misdirection, yeah. Almost psychological misdirection. Yeah. You know? To say to someone, Okay, yes, you're gonna play this love scene from Chekhov, but your trousers, you've forgotten <laughs> your belt. Yeah. Browsers are constantly falling down. So that's happening in the scene as well as the the, the serious love scene. You're yeah, I love that because it's, it's so true in it. Like in conversations in real life, you're so you're not 100% focused on the converse, as the way that it's written that we're having this conversation now. You yeah. are thinking about, oh, the kettle's making a noise or whatever. You know, I heard a great one on a workshop recently. It was like, what's in your character's pockets? And you sort of go, oh, that's yeah, awesome because... Because what is in your character's pockets and why? Because what he's carrying around with him, he's going to say quite interesting stuff about that character, yeah. isn't it? But it's so easy not to think about that stuff, I suppose. That's a good one. It's good, isn't it? Good it's good. Well, I'll pick up um, a bit about Ken, if we can, but also in something you just said I thought was interesting about actors not necessarily being oops, not necessarily being the actor that they think they are. Yeah. Um, is that true of most actors then? And who was the actor that you thought you were going to be? And are you, are <laughs> I you thought I was going person? to be. Yes. Um, well, going to be or or were, you know what I mean? Either or, I suppose. I suppose one's more of a career thing. Let's talk about style of acting first then. Are you the type of actor that you thought you were when you started out or have you found different things in yourself? I don't think how I act is different to what i thought it would be but how it is applied is different to what i thought it would be i i only ever really wanted to to do classical work okay. you know because i've grown up with that my dad was a huge fan of of gilgood and peggy ashcroft and all of that generation i saw gilgood on stage and my real god was paul schofield who i was lucky enough to see half a dozen times before he stopped acting on stage because his last shows were only well this century anyway mm. Um, so yeah, I wanted to do sort of classical stuff. I think what I didn't know about myself was that I like big challenges that I like, again, this thing about pushing myself outside the box, and this comes from before Ken, is that I like to start a job thinking I have no idea how I'm going to do this. You know, that's the best starting point for me. Rather than, you know, and, and that's not to say I haven't done jobs where you go, well, okay, this, this will be fun, but I know how to do this. It's comfortable. That's yeah. a definitely, definitely way to start a job. Yeah. You know, the fear of the unknown is really important for me. So I didn't know that about myself um, as a younger man. And I also didn't know how easily bored I was. I think my mother could have probably told me that <laughs> if I'd asked her. But, um, yeah, this there's a certain restlessness of wanting to repeat anything. Too much. Does that lead into what we were talking about before then, about changing projects and getting to the end of a project, where I guess there are people who will find something and do it for a long time and, and presumably not get bored. Maybe they do, I don't know, but sort of are yeah. able to put aside the boredom and keep doing it. People can, and, and I, don't, I think people generally can. It's a genuine question of mentality. I know people who've done certain shows for 10, 20 years, you know, mm. Um, fresh, you know, scripted shows or, 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 or non-scripted shows. Um, and yeah, they have, there's just some psychologically that's okay to them because they're, they're inventing on a different level. I think it's not that they're doing the same thing all the time. They can just find a way of keeping it fresh. And also there's the factor that, you know, I'll be 54 this year and you know that it's, as you get older, it gets much, much easier to get into habits. Mm. So you've got to make an effort to to break them, you know. Like um, back in May, I did a, a really brilliant, really fun uh, work in progress with a, a wonderful company called In Bed with My Brother, whose work I love. 
and uh, just because they, they were looking for someone, and up until now, because it's three young women who run the company, they they haven't had a, a guy in any way. Right. But I was really up for it because I love their work and I love their way of storytelling. But also, kind of like there's this whole this whole generation of great young theatre makers like Breach and Kandinsky and all kinds of people. Um, and you could just get left behind. You know, you can become the old slightly hammy one who you only hire to play the player king in Hamlet or something because that's mm. their style. Do you know mm. what I mean? Mm. And I don't want to be that guy. So you've got to go on learning there's that as well mm. you know as much as you were saying there's the 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 problem sometimes of letting people know what you are when you do lots of different things what about that difference between the classical world and you know uh, modern theater or naturalistic tv has, has that ever been a, a challenge to either do or to convince people that you can do or is it not as different as we might think looking from the outside once i'm doing the job it's never been a, a problem to convince someone but i think it it can be a problem in terms of perception. Mm. If you've done a lot of theatre and you've done a lot of Shakespeare, then people think I won't hire them to do telly. You know, it's that weird thing that we've got to get telly to do more telly, right? Mm-hmm. I do a reasonable amount now, and I, I really, I really love it because I've got so much still to learn in that in that right. field. Um, it's great, but I don't think. I mean, yeah, there are of course. There's, there's there are certain people whose perceptions are that you know. If you've done a lot of theatre, then it's all kinds of things, elitist or posh or excluding or old-fashioned or middle-class. or whatever. There's all those things, which it can be without any shadow of doubt, a lot. Um, but then there's other people like, maybe with my brother or middle child or rash dash, you know, doing work, which is none of those things. <laughs> if you can get the people in the building, right? Um so, yeah, the perceptions are there. I mean, if, 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 in terms of career stuff, we talk about, like, screen casting. It's not just a question. I, I wouldn't, you know, expect to get cast as, I don't know, a, a Birmingham drug dealer or something. That wouldn't be happening unless I was in, in the office at the top of the high-rise, right? But I don't get seen for period stuff, which is... Mm. Really hard to have this conversation because it immediately starts to like, oh, like I'm whinging. I'm not whinging at all. I'm stating a fact. Just an honest reflection. That's fine. That's no problem. Yeah. Um, now that might be just because obviously you know you, you don't get through the doors with the with the with the right people. But there's a whole world there of stuff which I have done on stage. Done lots of kings and sea captains and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but you've got to get that crucial job. So someone the industry literally goes, oh. He yeah, can do that. We see them. I've, come well. to, I've really come to accept as a just a truth of the world and of the industry that you can't expect someone to know you can do something they've never seen you do. How how would they know? Right? How are they meant to know? It's in your head, but you know, it's like we used to say in Showstopper a lot, you know, you know, what you intended to do is of no use. Only what you did is of use. Uh. There, there was a time when I was in Showstopper, there was a phrase that we weren't allowed to use, which was what I meant was. <laughs> that's utterly useless in an impro situation. What did you actually say and do is all that matters. And I think that's true, you know, in, in the industry as well, right? So what's the last thing I did? What will, what will the most people have seen? How will I be perceived? And in order to change that, you've got to get different work, mm. show people different things. Mm. So there's this great balance then between doing stuff you've never done before because it's scary, as you mentioned before, yeah. but then somehow convincing people that you're going to be able to do it even if you've never done it before. But that's one of those beautiful yeah. contradictions that we encounter, I suppose. And also, you know, if you're really lucky, and I have been very lucky, then you find a few people who trust you enough on a basic level to, to work with you regularly and therefore give you all kinds of different challenges. Mm. You know, that's a massive gift. Mm. How did you encounter Ken in the first place? How did you get into his circle? His orbit? Ooh, uh, Ken was at school with my dad. Oh. He was third witch to my father's Macbeth. <laughs> he was, I think, four years younger than him or so. So my dad was like a senior boy. They went to a sort of small public school called Chigwell near, Il- in, near Ilford in Essex. Um, and uh, both of them on, I don't know if they were on scholarships or whatever anyway, doesn't matter. Neither of them came from wealthy families. And, um, yes, they met doing that and then sort of weren't in touch. And then this is, this is definitely a story that can get very long. So I'll try and keep it short. 
My mum took my dad to his 60th birthday to see one of Ken's great one-man shows at the Cottesloe, as it then was, now the Dorfman. Um, and it was about the time Ken had just done the very first revival of The Walk, which was a one-off show at the old Three, Three Mills Island studio with um, Alan Cox playing the central role. Mm-hmm. And that had been a kind of glorious debacle for reasons I won't go into now because it takes too long. And Alan had decided under those circumstances, he didn't want to do it again. So he had this thing and he didn't have a central actor. And so they were the, the dads, my dad and Ken were talking about what their kids were doing and blah, blah, blah. And the next thing I know, I'm told I have to give Ken a call um, because he's, we're going to go out for a drink. And you're like, no, that's the most embarrassing thing ever. We'll go have not knowing Ken. You think I have to go out for an embarrassing, awkward gin and tonic and then we'll never see each other again. Right. Actually, what happened was I met him. He was at the time di- directing the first manifestation of Pigeon Macbeth with the Lambda students. Extraordinary thing. And um, he gave me a shopping trolley full of binders. This is all, this is 98. So we're all still mm-hmm. kind of pre computer and certainly mobile phones. Uh, a stack of binders and a stack of VHSs, which is the script and the recording of the original production of Illumina, of Warp. Uh, from 78 at the ICA. Um, he said, I'm not going to do his voice. He said, go and read this. And he said, and if, if you learn it, you can do it. That was the deal, right? Film Masters is about the size of five and a half Hamlets. So I went away. I watched this extraordinary video, which is it's amazing. The original video is extraordinary. There is film of our production, but it hasn't ever been released. Um, Anyway, it's extraordinary. So I watched it. I said yes, uh, and I and I learned it. I actually learned it while I was on the road with the production of Akebourne Seasons Greetings, mm-hmm. the end of 90, so 97 into 98, something like that. I learned it. I was tested by a lovely uh, actor called John Joyce over two days, and uh, and he told Ken I'd learned it. And, and, and Ken said to John, is he any good? And John, bless him to this day, said, I didn't know that was part of the deal. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't what you said. You just said learn it. <laughs> and it went on from there. So we did it. So that was how I started with Ken. And we did, I did the walk with him for, and with, with Daisy, his daughter, doing principal direction and Ken kind of presenting and stepping in and out and managing mm. and stuff. Mm. Um, still very much there. And, and then there was a long break and then came back to him when we started doing School of Night in 2005. Shakespeare's birthday at the Globe, and then went on doing that till, and also then Showstopper kicking off. But that was really shortly before he died. When Ken mm. died, we we'd, we were still in or had just finished our first Edinburgh in two thousand and eight. So be- and before that Edinburgh, we'd done like ten shows. So that was that came later. So that was you know, that's a, a shortish version of how I got came into Ken. So that's great, thank you. Worth going for that gin and tonic then, basically. At the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, he wasn't drinking anymore, thankfully. I didn't know the the, the drinking Ken. Ah, uh, was he scary? I asked uh, people who've met him. Uh, say, uh, yeah, he could be terrifying. I mean, he could be terrifying, terrifying anyway. He yeah. was. He could be terrifying. But I was I was very lucky because of Alan deciding he didn't want to do it and me stepping in. I was kind of left alone. All right. I did see a few other actors getting getting a you know a good shouting at. But um, if I walk, there's no show, right? So I was kind of left alone. You were being useful. That's that thing, isn't it? I, I hear was like, being very be yes. useful yes. and kind of rescuing the day, I suppose, as opposed to yes. going into a situation and being like, I need you to give me the job. I think there's a lot in that, isn't there? I need you to give me the job versus, I, you know, you need someone to do this and I can do it. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Mm. So that's really good. Well, I love that thing. Um, I forget his name. Uh, the actor who played the lead in Breaking Bad, whatever his name is. Uh, Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston, thank you. That thing that I first t- saw him say, but I've seen a couple of other American actors say since, to remember that when you go into the rehearsal room, you're doing your work. Yeah, I love that. I think it's really useful. Yeah, I read his book. His book's good. Um, and okay. it's it's that kind of thing. I, as a As a younger actor, he felt he was going into an audition to get a job yeah and then when he didn't get a job he felt like a failure but actually the job was to do the audition as well and then because it's sort of stoicism as well isn't it the getting the job or whatever is not actually in your control that's somebody else's decision and it can be stuff that's nothing to do with you anyway so there's no point being too stressed about it having said which 
I have only, of course, heard that said by actors who are now very successful. successful. Yeah. Well, not to know, how much was that in your head when you were 28? Yes. Still fighting. That's you know? true. But it's like a job interview in a way, isn't it? Well, it is a job interview, but sort of... Or sa- I think salesmanship is a similar thing as well. If you're if a salesman is coming across that they're desperate for you to buy something off them, you immediately kind of go, yeah, not yeah. so much. Whereas if a salesman can make you think they're helping you solve a problem, you're a bit more psychology again, isn't it? Back to the magic yeah. trick, I suppose. Yeah, that's it. You don't even realise you're you're buying something almost. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Very good. Interesting. Okay, um, I know that you've also done directing as well, and I was very curious to spot the, the one-person uh, monologue shows that you've directed, because that's the sort of world that I'm quite interested in as to how that works when you have a performer and a director what's the director's role in that i guess it's very important really if if you're the the only person that that performer has to sort of bounce things against is that right yeah absolutely that's absolutely right i i mean it plays to my strengths as well that's the thing i think the first three one three one person shows the first shows i directed two by Max Dickens and one by an actress called Jemsky. And uh, what I'm good at, I'm good at, you know, coaching actors. I'm good at dramaturgy, you know. And and those things together are perfect for a one-person show. If I had 10 people on that stage and had to kind of create those pictures and stuff, I've never done it, but I'm, that would be much harder for me. I mean, I'd love to because it would be, I'd be terrified. So that's a good thing, reason to do it. But um, my strengths as a performer and teacher are suited to working with one or two actors. So that's always worked out quite well. Mm. So. Mm. Cool. Um, okay, great. Um, the School of Night, then. More on that. That's all right. Cool. The School of um, Night, that's improvised Shakespeare, which... A lot of improvisers, I think, would say, well, everyone thinks improv is terrifying, which it can be, but improvising Shakespeare sounds particularly terrifying. So talk about that. (laughs) Is it as hard as it sounds? What's good about that? Well, I think if you you have a a backing, what's the word, you know, roots in it, then it's not. If you don't, I've tried to teach bardic improvisation in drama schools and I find it really hard because the, the rhythm of the iambic isn't there and the knowledge of the tropes of the plays isn't there um, so it can it's very hard for some people you know um, but I'm not sure that it's any harder for those people than say p- improvising Oscar Wilde or even Tennessee Williams because a lot of them don't have these references anyway mm. you know and if you don't have the background knowledge then then it's going to be hard I mean, and even we would kind of gen up on stuff when we were because when we were doing School of Night when it first started, the, always the Shakespeare was always there, but there are other procedures as well. Okay. So we still do a, a Chaucer procedure, which is where we get someone's ancestor out of the audience and we do a poem in Chaucerian form, and we'll do a fairy tale in the style of five different dramatists like Alan Bennett and Chekhov and whatever you know calls from the audience and all of that. Um, and the idea is that you're ascending into procedures that are more and more complicated, right? Ending with, as we call it, ascension, which is the attempt to channel a lost Shakespeare play. Um, but I think what makes what we do not unique by any means, but unusual, is that it comes from Ken again, which is the fact that he always used to say improvisation should be better than a scripted play. Because if it's not, he'd say then start off and rehearse, put the work in, you know? So that's not to say that what we do always is that, but it's absolutely the intention of that is that it is not taking the mickey. Mm. Um, it's not pastiching. It is attempting to be like you're in the Swan Theatre watching the RSC performing whatever the play is called, you know. Um, so that is – it's also it's what sets us apart. I, I was up at a conference in British Shakespeare Association conference uh, doing a – of being a panel, part of a panel on yeah. Shakespeare and improvisation. And I suddenly realised in terms of the other people in the room and on Zoom from America and stuff, I thought, oh, we've always made it very difficult for ourselves because we we don't use either the word Shakespeare or the word improvisation in our, in our name, right? For a long time, we didn't use the word improvisation in 
even in Blur, we'd always say extemporized, not improvised, because we thought that was clever. Mm-hmm. Um, when the difficult thing with the show, I hope, is that, because um, the show is always different, obviously, is to make people feel like there is clever stuff there, but it's not excluding you. Yes. It's inspiring you and drawing you in rather than going, it's not saying we're cleverer than you are, which is one of the reasons we wear our big fluffy slippers and tea coasters on our heads, you know, to remind ourselves that should we take ourselves too seriously, we sort of look ridiculous, right? <laughs> so there's always this, always that balance of playing incredibly high status with it. Yes. But always saying this is also, this is impossible. What we're attempting is impossible. Yeah. And that's always been of more interest than, and this is not, to say it is uh, a bad thing at all than doing, uh, you know, something that's kind of neo-Shakespearean um, and, which is, and which is kind of about having fun with the Shakespeare, you know, whereas our, our um, I'm not sure if I'm exactly answering your question, but I'll just finish this. Um, our world, if you like, for the, the, the presentations of the School of Night is more like a Victorian gentleman's club where they've decided to put on a show, you know, and they're all experts in, I don't know, linguistics and etymology and stuff like that. that right. That's that's kind of more where it's coming from. That didn't, did that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. And that's that's the basis of the name, isn't it? The original School of Night, if I'm right, it's a theory that it was that and that you tell us right. it better than me. It's a group comprising a number of people, including Walter Raleigh, Raleigh, uh, Possibly John D, uh, with the Earl of Northumberland and others, and they they did they did talk about uh, the circulation of the blood and astronomy and poetry and all kinds of stuff. And the authorship theory is that the son of a glove maker from Stratford in the corner was writing everything down, and that was William Shakespeare. It doesn't it doesn't really work because Walter Raleigh was dead very early in Shakespeare's life. So, but it's fun. It all came out of a show we did in two thousand and six called In Pursuit of Cardinio. Right. Um, which was using John Michel's book, Who Wrote Shakespeare, to um, decide which authorship theory we liked best. And Ken hadn't come across uh, the School of Night theory. So then we created the School of Night on the back of that, really, 2006. The idea was of this underground esoteric group who could improvise in any form, including Shakespeare. And then as you go on, you know, Shakespeare does sell, even if you're not giving it a hard sell. So that became our centerpiece as mm. Mm. yeah and you guys are right in the autumn i think doing uh, something for the 400th anniversary of the folio uh yeah yes yeah. so we're in birmingham on the 2nd of september doing a whole day of activities there that's 10 slash 400 because it's the 10th anniversary of the building of the new new birmingham library and the 400th but it's it's a particularly good one there because that folio is the only one in the world that isn't privately owned. It belongs to the city of Birmingham. It belongs to the people of Birmingham. Um, not that they can all go in and touch it, but nonetheless, it is public property, not private property. So that's really good. And then a few weeks later, we're in uh, Leeds with Slung Low and also in conjunction with British Library North doing an outdoor show uh, and some other bits and pieces, again, in connection with the folio. And then we're in Aldborough in October, the Shake Festival. Great. Excellent. Yeah. And yeah. amongst all of that, so you, you know, you're doing theatre work, TV work, all the other stuff that's happening. How important has it been to be making your own work then, whether it's the School of Night or the other stuff that's happening? It, is that something that you say is that everybody needs to be doing or, or can people get by without it and just waiting for the, the phone call from the agent? What do you think? No, I don't think there's virtually no one who can get by just waiting for the phone call for the agent, not realistically. I mean, a t- tiny percentage of our profession we know, but even then, you know, I know some people are very successful and it's not like they do that. They have lives and they have families and they have bills to pay and they'll go off and do other appearances or master classes or, you know, if you're sort of a few, a few more rungs up the ladder, you'll still be doing other stuff um, because, we, you know, you all know how it is that an actor can suddenly have four films out in a year if they've been lucky enough to make those films. But two of those have probably been sitting on a shelf and waiting to be edited for three years. So they might've been unemployed for 18 months at the time those four movies come out, you know? Um, so yeah, definitely uh, need to do other stuff and it can be making your own work. And I do, I do say that to everyone um, when I'm teaching particularly, because I think that's also to do with how that, how the world has changed since I started. 
but I suppose for me, it's been mostly teaching for a long time. That's been my, my, my second thing, mm-hmm. if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But then latterly, for instance, now something that came up over COVID and has sort of taken the place of that a little bit is I do translation of tabletop games from French. And that's become another thing I do because I can do it from home and it's very flexible. But, you know, I've I've just got on the books of a a new communication skills company doing online role play for them and hopefully facilitation. Um, So, yeah, all of those different options that there are for people. Um, Again, I think if you're lucky, you find something that you really love. You know, I had a few friends who are celebrants doing marriages and funerals oh. or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, but I don't think anyone can, well, say apart from that, very, a very small number of people just do that. Mm. And of course, like you were talking about before, it keeps things interesting, doesn't it, to be doing various projects. And if you are making your own stuff as well, it's, you know, if you're passionate about things, I think that's important and it informs everything else also. Yes, yes. The difficulty with making one's own work is that you need to find people that you love working with, I think, you know? Yeah. And so, as I've said, I've been lucky over the years that, like, with Alan Lane at Slung Low and, indeed, the whole Slung Low team, Matt and Joe and everyone, uh, I will always drop whatever I have, if if it's at all possible, and do whatever Slung Low needs of me Mm. because I like their ethic. I've done lots of fantastic adventures with them, and I will do that, uh, Daisy Campbell, Ken's daughter, you know, is a brilliant mind and an extraordinary creator of art. Uh, and, you know, again, if it's if at all possible, I will go and collaborate with her. I, I'm a very collaborative. I've, I've realized over the COVID period that I, I don't work very well in isolation as an artist. Um, and I'm quite reactive rather than instigative. Right. You know, if someone says, I've got this idea, I'll go, yes, I believe in that. I will now work hard to make that happen. Um, but not so much in terms of the original stuff. Mm. Okay. A couple of final quick questions then. Well, they might sure. be quick, they might not be. Um, <laughs> competition and jealousy with, with other performers, is that something that you have encountered or has that never been part of your mindset? So someone you've worked with is doing particularly well or is doing a project that you might have liked to yeah. be involved with. Does that bother you or not? No. Good. No, I can't <laughs> say it does. Um, I, I'm, I'm only ever really in competition with myself. And if, if, if I'm not, if things aren't happening or other people are doing well, then I think of it more in terms of something that I might not have done rather than being jealous of them. So that is not, I don't think, something that I suffer from. It makes me angry when you see someone who's not very good. You know, that's annoying. But, you know, let's be, it doesn't happen very often. Mostly there's a lot of really talented people out there and uh, that's lovely to see. So, no. No, I don't think that's something I experienced. Because more and more, even though... So when I was younger, I, I really... There are places I'd still like to work. I'd love to do a job at the National. I'd love to work at the Globe. Uh, yeah, Armada, maybe one or two other places. But um, generally, I want to work with the people I love working with. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. That's not easy, and and right now it's not necessarily happening, but I'm going to make it happen. So it becomes more and more about the working relationships with people who you enjoy working with. That's great. And then how about criticism? Um, Having things critiqued, is that something that you uh, enjoy, or are you bothered by that? Do you pay attention to it? What's your reaction to that stuff? I can't say I enjoy it, uh, but Hmm. I do read. I do read reviews because I've always thought that if you read reviews and 10 of them say a similar thing, then they might have a point. No okay. individual has a point. Uh, and I've had, I remember my very first Edinburgh, 1989, no, 98, my second Edinburgh, I tell a lie. 98, my second Edinburgh, I was in the Pleasant Attic with a trio I played with for a while, a cellist and a percussionist. And at that point, the, the Scotsman had a feature during Edinburgh. They've stopped it now called The Page of Shame. Uh-huh. And our show was the first whole top half of The Page of Shame. Wow. And it's just, you know, young journalists showing off, really. And, and I, w- I was okay because I'd already suffered a lot of, you know, critical whatever by then. But it affected one of the other individuals really badly because they just weren't exposed to that at all. Um, so 
N- no, I, I don't like it, but but I regard it as a necessary evil. I, I do perhaps think now that in the, the growth of podcasts, it becomes not podcasts, sorry, not podcasts, uh, <laughs> online reviewers. Yeah. You know, um, then it becomes more dangerous because there's people who aren't trained in how they phrase what they're writing. Generally, they seem to be you know quite nice and put things in quite a mild way, but it's uh, there's a danger there. I would say. But as with as with um, your, your previous question, I'd say I'm always my my worst critic. Mm. No one's going to beat you in terms of criticism no. of your own stuff. No one's going to come close. No. <laughs> cool. Okay, uh, we'll round up there. Thank you so much, Oliver. That's been really interesting. If people wanted to keep up with what's happening with the School of Night and your various projects, what's the best way of doing that? So, School of Night is on www.theschoolofnight.com. Um, and then we haven't we didn't, we didn't talk about this, but there's also um, an event I'm, I'm organising a forum for East Kent theatre makers in October, and you can find out about that on Improbable's Devoted and Disgruntled website on Folkestone Quarterhouse website. It's called Devoted and Disgruntled East Kent. Who needs theatre? <laughs> That's the main ones at the moment. Great. Was there the TEDx as well? Was that the same thing? Well, no, I just meant it's like a TEDx version. You know what I mean? So oh, it's I not see. the big annual improbable. I think they call it an impro- a, a, a D&D satellite. Got it. Okay. Because it's specifically for that area as opposed to a national event. That's awesome. Okay, Oliver, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been fascinating. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects I'm working on. Thank you. Goodbye.